0: Welcome to the Light Bears Institute podcast, where we seek to improve biblical literacy by discussing key storylines and themes in scripture. This is Andrew Brill.
1: Welcome to the Light Bears Institute podcast. We've got our Light Bears Executive Director, Kevin McCollum, here with us. And uh, Kevin has taught this, I don't know how, how many times you taught this, Kevin, about five, ten? Yeah,
0: since the pilot class that we started, maybe. Um... You know, I don't know how many years ago, seven years ago, something yeah. like that. Huh.
1: And uh, and so this time you taught it just in Starkville, Mississippi. And so that's really what we're going to get into today. And I know that we really reworked the Institute last year to say, let's aim at this theme of God glorifying himself by dwelling among a holy covenant people. You really led the charge to say, let's try to come up with a clear statement to describe what's in the Bible, the theme of the Bible. What what was the rationale for why you wanted to do that? and And really, why this
0: theme? Why do we land here? Yeah, great questions. Um, You know, the idea of a meta narrative is really kind of defined as biblical theology. So there's a big story, you know, what is it? And certainly if we know there's a big story there, you know, it's our responsibility to to find it. It might affect how we view everything else. And in fact, I believe it does. Um, Part of it comes from my own story. You know, I um, didn't grow up in church, so came to Christ at age 15 and in coming to Christ, I began to learn these basic stories, um, from the Bible, uh, you know, the Daniel, David, you know, Saul and all these key, um, you know, uh, characters in the old Testament and the events that surrounded them. And, and, um, oftentimes the lesson that I would come away with was given to me as a, as a moral truth. So somehow David and Goliath was, um, sort of reduced down to, uh, you know, facing giants in your life, um, you know, those types of things, defeating your enemies or, um, you know, Daniel was about having confidence or, or um, courage in the midst of adversity that God would uh, do something, you know, if we trust him enough. And, but what I didn't know and what what I was missing was how all those stories really hung on a bigger story. What, what was God doing in the midst of all of that, that really had nothing Directly to do with my response, and, and I think once I understood that God has a story, a purpose throughout all of Scripture, and and in fact all of history and our future, um, I began to see how these stories sort of hang on that. So you mentioned it as we as we've adopted this statement that God is glorifying Himself by dwelling among a holy covenant people. We recognize that the story of uh, Daniel, for example, the lions' den. Is really about Darius's proclamation that now there's I know there's only one true God, you know, and that uh, everyone in the nation, everyone of my people, will follow this one true God, and so that is indeed God dwelling among His people, His covenant people, and glorifying His name in the process. So, um, so as we looked at our institute coursework, we were spending a lot of time with systematic theology, or what does the Bible say about one particular topic, like the church or the Holy Spirit, or uh, and we were all also doing a survey, so looking at sort of uh, uh, each book of the Bible and, and its purpose in Scripture and, and how to read it. Uh, I think we were missing, and, and you and I discussed this at length, that sort of weave that took the took our students uh, through this um, uh, this great story and how all of these truths sort of hang hang there. So, yeah,
1: yeah and um, I think that. Um, one of the pieces in, or one of the pieces of feedback we've gotten consistently has been: there's great stuff, but this is so um, uh, it's it's too abstract sometimes. The, the pieces aren't connected. We have 15 different instructors every semester sometimes, and so that's some of the feedback we've gotten: is how can we help this hold together? And right. and I, I know that's kind of your heart is to say, hey, these aren't just isolated stories. And so you know that's the feedback we've gotten from. Students as well, um, and so it's been neat to kind of see this flesh out. I like it better than eight years ago when we started this thing. Right. So, another right. piece of feedback we've gotten consistently is that, in general, I think the Old Testament is the class that's been the most well received. I think a lot of that is because students come and say, "These are stories I didn't really know. What's your take on why we need to focus on the Old Testament? Why not just jump to Jesus? You know, in a sense, sure. what's the what's the rationale for? Hey, let's spend a whole semester on just the Old Testament."
0: Yeah, I think you can't, number one, you can't be biblically literate if you don't know the Old Testament. Uh, You can't do an effective Bible survey uh, unless you know your Old Testament. This great theme of God glorifying Himself by dwelling among a holy covenant people actually is established early in the Old Testament, and we see it play out throughout um, the New. And I think you can't effectively understand the New Testament until you understand that the Old Testament is crying out for this Redeemer to come, crying out for one who would be the ultimate sacrificial lamb, uh, our kinsman redeemer, and all this sort of typology, if you will, that we find in the Old Testament that is fulfilled in Christ, and it adds a richness to it and really a deeper understanding. I think we have some misconceptions, of course, about the Old Testament. One is that it's not uh, valid anymore, Um, and so it's not taught much, Um, and it it takes a little deeper dive to really understand it, Uh, and so it's not frequently taught, I think, even as we... Um, look at churches or different um, discipleship programs. They don't spend a lot of time you know thinking about how the Old Testament really foreshadows. Um, so those are those are certainly key. Uh, we know the Old Testament to be scripture. you know I've heard uh, that the Old Testament is like I said, it's void, which means it has no value or it's not authoritative anymore. but even Christ himself quoting scripture, Uh, Any declaration straight from God was um, when he read Isaiah and said, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so we know even uh, Christ modeled from the beginning that the Old Testament was um, to be taken seriously and seen as the very words of God. As 2 Timothy 3 talks about all scripture being breathed out, that includes the the Old Testament or Hebrews 4, you know, about the word of God being living, it's active, it's sharp. It's those that doesn't uh, preclude the... Uh, New Testament. As a matter of fact, when those were written in letter form, there was not a New Testament. So they're referring to the Old Testament first, and eventually we know they applied to the, the New Testament as we have in the canon. So.
1: Yeah. Um, you say about, you know, seven different things that we could go off on rabbit trails, <laughs> maybe more than seven of, hey, let's go here, let's go here. But um, for the sake of, of kind of limiting ourselves to, to, to what we talked about at Institute, you know, I don't, know, you know, I can't remember how many chapters are in the Bible but we spend, an, you know, an exorbitant amount of time on the first three that, that, you know, if you look at, you know, we have the whole Bible to go through in a year. We're flying. I mean, students are drinking out of a fire hydrant, to be sure. And yet we start by saying we're going to spend probably at least half the first class on just the first three chapters of the Bible. Why is it so significant that to teach biblical literacy, we, we,
0: we stick in Genesis 1 to 3 for so long? Certainly, in God's providence, we have them first. Um, there's there's some foundational material that uh, God and His goodness put put early in, so we would understand. But if you think about the major themes that we go back to from Genesis to Revelation, you pretty much can trace every one of them back to the first three chapters of Genesis, or sort of the existence of God, the creative work of God, the the sort of sovereignty of God, the creative work of Christ, the the sustaining power of the Holy Spirit, all these things. Uh, creation redemption uh, but in the midst in between those is the fall and without sort of understanding those three things creation fall and then the promise of redemption we've seen in genesis 3 um i think you miss you miss so much and so there's such foundational truth there that it's just a mandate sitting on it for a long time and i, and I remember andrew when you and i were working out the syllabus years ago and continue to go back to it it, it feels uh you know, out of balance when you just do uh, 15 chapters in one, one class, when you, you know, you have at the most 26 to get through the entire scripture. But as we looked at the content and the weight and the importance um, of those three passages and how they immediately frame us up to what I would say is a Christocentric view of the Bible, which I think is critical um, uh, and and, uh, that we have to spend that time. We have to get that first, understand a couple of key covenants, understand what happened in the garden? What happened uh, after the fall? What happened in Genesis three when God proclaims his um, the three curses that we look at? Uh, and I think we can launch from there and move much more quickly. Mm-hmm. You use that
1: word Christocentric. Stop there. Slow. I mean, explain what you mean when you say Christocentric. Obviously, that's that's key to your and, and our understanding of Scripture. But what do you mean when you say Christocentric?
0: Yeah. So basically being centered upon Christ. So when you read scripture, you have Christ in mind continuously. Obviously that's Christ as revealed in the scripture, not the Christ of your own making, not the Christ sort of um, in your journal, if you will, but but Christ as revealed in scripture. Um, uh, I think about Luke 24, you know, you have uh, post the resurrection, you have uh, disciples walking along the road to Emmaus and um, this mysterious character shows up and says, what are, you, what are you talking about? And we know from scripture, Luke tells us it's Jesus himself. And um, they're confused because the, this Jesus had died and they, they say in verse 23, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem, redeem Israel. Um, and what's interesting is the only way they would have had the hope is through the Old Testament, right? The happenings through Old Testament and historical Israel. Um, and then Jesus um, reveals who he is. And he says, um, you're foolish ones. You're slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. And with in verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Jesus himself had that, that view and shows us there in Luke 24. Later in verse 44, he says that Moses and the prophets and the psalmists were all writing about him. We see that in John 5, we see that in Acts 3, that God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that Christ would suffer, and then he fulfilled that, and and it goes on later in Acts 3 as well and gives us more. Uh, And so that's what it means to be Christocentric. And I think it's important that as we read the Old Testament, that we don't isolate the Old Testament away from the New Testament. The New Testament is actually a divinely inspired commentary to the Old Testament, right so the new testament gives us insight to the old testament we'd be foolish to read the old testament and say well i don't want any of the new testament to play a role in my understanding of the old testament no we've given the new testament partially so we can see the typology in the old testament how it's been about christ from the beginning and how he fulfills it uh in in the first century palestine and for forever
1: Mm -hmm. I, i that moment in luke 24 if i'm if i'm making my list of moments in scripture that i'd want to be at that's definitely that's like in the top five you know because it's—I mean—just you just imagine of, of Jesus walking through moments from the Old Testament and saying, "Here's where I was. Here's where I was. Here's where I was." Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just—you know—and you, know, you, you kind of wonder: Are there things that He explained to them that we haven't even heard? I mean, that aren't in Scripture that that our eyes just haven't seen yet? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just pretty amazing to to think about that. So, um, okay, within talking about Genesis one and two in particular, I know that you you talk about the concept of God at work. And God at rest. Talk about what you mean by that as we look at at the beginning of Genesis.
0: Yeah. So Genesis one, you know, we start off with a lot of information about God in 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 verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we know that there was a God that was before the beginning. We don't know exactly what he was up to, but but certainly no sense that he was um, bored and needed to do something to work. You know, to satisfy his uh, um, you know his boredom or. Or that he was compelled out of some aching heart to do something um, to, to fulfill a need in his life, if you will. Um, but so when we first see God on the scene, we see him working. We see him doing something. So that says something about the character of God, that God is a working God. God works. Um, and we we see, what does he do? He speaks. The world's created. Um, and uh, and he does this for six days. So we walk through the, the first chapter of Genesis, getting his work one day after the next, after the next, until the end of his work is finished. It's complete. And so he rests, not rests out of tiredness, but he stops. He rests because he's completely finished the work. There's no task to be done that he hasn't already completed. There's no further work necessary, um, in his creative work that, um, that is left out there. He didn't rest because he was going to have to get back at it on Monday. Like we do, but he just stopped because he was finished. It was a completed thing. And so not only did he rest, but because God's at rest, because uh, everything uh, is as it should be, then even creation is at rest in perfect union with God, you know, from Adam and Eve to the plants, to the animals, uh, to the ecosystem, um, you know, everything exactly as God created it. So you have this wonderful situation where God, creation, man, all completely at rest because everything had been finished. Yeah, and the opposite of rest is just this idea of chaos, and you mm-hmm. just see—I mean, the world we live in. There's just so much chaos. Mm-hmm. So well, you see that. And you know, obviously in Genesis three, um, what happens after the re- the world um, gets uh, stirred up? You know, when sin enters the world, and exactly you see the opposite of rest, and even a, a striving that we have to do to enter God's rest. The word says even in that striving would have been a necessary pre-fall. There would be no necessary striving, if you will, even to to come to a point of um, being content in Christ, yeah. if you will.
1: Let me let me you, you mentioned Genesis three. Let me kind of combine the last two questions. You know, you you talk about being Christocentric and then you mentioned Genesis three. Yeah. You know, is that the moment where you say hey that, that's as we look at the beginning of Genesis, that's a really key Christocentric passage, a place to see Jesus? I mean, talk about where you see Jesus within this within this section of scripture.
0: Yeah. Well, I think you get there. First of all, I think if you look at John 1, you look at Colossians 1, you look at Hebrews 1, we know that Jesus himself is the creator agent of creation. So God spoke, Jesus creates, the Holy Spirit sort of sustains that. So, so Jesus is it doesn't sort of enter the scene, if you will, in Genesis 3, but Jesus has, was there. Jesus is creator. That's why, one of the reasons why, that all of our life and all of creation is is his and to be submitted to him and for his glory. And at the end, he reconciles all things. But when Adam and Eve sin and fall, that um, relationship or that uh, access, if you will, to seeing Christ in his full glory and access to him, uh, is broken so that's what we call the fall and it's a mighty fall if you look at from rest to chaos and using your words I think that are that are very good um, I think in Genesis 3 specifically we look at this um moment in time when Adam and Eve fail and God God comes after them and he gives them this sort of the, this uh, proclamation of how it's different now there's this uh, tremendous passage in 315 that that Um, where God just shows us the hint of redemption. I think this is where you see Jesus um, uh, in his um, redemptive work first proclaimed. There's this great statement when he's cursing the serpent. And in verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So a couple of great things where you see God's grace here. Number one, God could have easily said, and would have been justified to say, if you want to rebel against me, then you're going to stay friends, right? You want to be friends aligned against a holy God. It's the same thing, you know, a Lucifer rebelled and a third of the angels fell. There was no sort of redemptive opportunity. Um, They were enemies. Well, here uh, God says, Okay, instead of going with Lucifer as the angels, I'm going to put enmity between you and between Satan, between your offspring and his offspring. In other words, his grace said, I'm going to enter in your enmity between you instead of allowing you to stay friends. And your offspring, true followers of God, if you will, and his offspring will be at war with each other and he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He being, we know from the New Testament, being Christ. And so the second part of that is, one of the offspring of Eve, well, will, you're going to bruise his heel. You're going to give a wound to this offspring, but this offspring will be the one that will crush your head. See, it will crush your head. The, um, the head of Satan crushed underneath the feet of Jesus is the prophecy there. And so we see him on display and we see this great first proclamation that I'm going to create, I'm going to separate you from Satan and I am going to redeem you because Jesus is going to defeat your enemy forever. So He declares victory, if you will, in this this war that He um, He allows us to be in, uh, and it's really a glorious thing if you think about the, what the contrast, what the opposite of that would be if God had proclaimed it differently.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I, I remember when we we had um, Jim Hamilton come in, the Southern Seminary professor. Um, who came and kind of walked through some of this with our staff, and he pointed out that we use the language of the curse, but the only one who's actually cursed is Satan in that. And and so just, I mean, it kind of goes back to this, you know, it seems as if there would either be, you're either with God or with Satan. And what God essentially does is he he kind of creates this third section out there where it's, you're not aligned with me anymore, and you're fighting against me, and yet I'm not going to just... Cast you over mm-hmm. to Satan to to permanently be with him, and so um, I, I mean I told you this before, and that's part of the reason I want to ask this question is I mean since since we first started doing the institute, that was something that that has just jumped out at me, and I know just talking with other students, that's been significant to understand that we use language of curse, but there's actually just mercy mm-hmm. all struck through this, um, which is really really powerful to see. So, um. The other thing, another thing I remember from when we started doing this eight years ago is I remember I don't know if we were sitting or standing but we had this conversation of okay well we should end the first week at Genesis eleven that's what everybody does it gets mm-hmm. you through you know creation Noah you know Cain and Abel's in there takes you to the Tower of Babel and then everybody goes to Genesis twelve that's where you start that's where that's where the, you you would end the first week and start the second week and I remember you kind of prepping that and saying uh, I, I want to go through Genesis fifteen there's something in Genesis fifteen that I really really like and so. Um, I know every time you've taught this, that's a, that's a passage you've come back to. And my guess is most of the people listening to this, if they haven't come and heard the Institute, they wouldn't have any idea what's in Genesis 15. I mean, it's just not one that is super familiar. So talk about why you felt so strongly that Genesis 15 is is so significant. What's happening there. That's big to set up
0: our understanding of the, of the whole Bible really. Yeah. Great question. I think, um, you know, Hebrews 11, the end of 11 is a natural break. Um, It kind of, it ends when God deals with people in general or mankind, and he begins to deal with a person and a family in Abraham. We see that Genesis 12 verse one and on. Um, And so I think the leaving after Genesis 12, there are a couple of motivations. Uh, One is that we have a limited amount of time. Yeah. Right. And so uh, we have to add more. But bigger than that, I think to walk through and end with a story, end with the flood, end with Noah, end with Babel. Um, you know, you're you're leaving sort of our students and, and leaving the story hanging out there with this. You know, man is doing only evil all the time. The Tower of Babel for their own fame, and and you, you have this hunger of like, what's God doing here? And I just think it's um a little more complete to to transition into at least Genesis twelve into Genesis 15 to say ah okay I get it now I'm really hungry to know more if that makes sense because God does something amazing he he takes Abraham we have we have no indication that Abram um was anything more than the sun worshipers that the Chaldeans were known to be could have been different we don't know we know certainly God chose him the word says he, he knew he would be faithful he would he would teach his children and in the some of the things that we learn later but um we have no indication that somehow he had a, um, a direct line to God himself in his own like adult practices or childhood practices. But God calls him. He says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations, which I think is great. And we, we stop there too. And I think that's also stopping a little short because by stopping there, we could easily make it about ourselves. It's about Abraham. It's about Israel, uh, traditional Israel or, or today's Israel, or even the sort of the Christian church, which it is. Um, But the reality is, if you if you miss when you get to Genesis fifteen, you have this great story uh, where God uh, restates this um, covenant that He makes, this just agreement that He makes, uh, not with Abraham but for Abraham or on behalf of Abraham, which is a big distinction. Um, In Genesis fifteen, He makes this statement, and then um, God does something amazing there. There was a a practice when. uh, called cutting covenant So when two people made an agreement, let's say Andrew, you decide to um, sell me a piece of property. Uh, we make terms. We have an audience in front of us, and we draw up the paperwork. It's a high price. If we're agreeing. This would be a really yeah. high price for this land. Okay, so I'm going to walk away from your deal, and I'm going to go find <laughs> another guy. Uh, so we we cut a deal, and, and it's all on paper, just like we do today. It's all legal, and you have witnesses. But then we would take, depending on the, the sort of the significance of the event, if it was a significant enough agreement, then we would take an animal, maybe a calf, and we would um, divide that calf into two pieces, nose to tail, spend hours probably. I, I don't know about your knifing skills, but it might take us a little while. They're long. low. <laughs> My knifing skills are low. <laughs> your two-inch blade, That's you right. pull out. You have to go borrow one first, yeah. probably.
1: Send me and grab the Swiss army knife. It's needed.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. So we would, we would take that time and we would cut this animal. I mean, for one, what a nasty mess this is going to make. And everybody's going to watch it's you know, we're outdoors and we get this finished. But in the end, the ceremony would continue. You and I would walk around these animals and independently walk in the middle between the two pieces, stepping on all the guts and gore and all the things. But what we're saying to everyone around us, this agreement is so important that if either one of us break this agreement before God and man, may we be like this calf that was just hacked to pieces, you know, uh, in the middle of this field right i mean gruesome but it showed what they would see as a very weighty understanding of what covenant was mm-hmm. it wasn't flighty it wasn't just a handshake it wasn't a, a mild contract this was something really weighty that we would do we wouldn't enter into that lightly obviously so get to genesis 15 you have god um speaking back to abraham this uh great covenant that he that he makes uh, on his behalf um and and abraham falls into a deep sleep, the word says. He, you know, the, the animal has been cut, Abraham prepares everything as God instructs him. Abraham, God puts him in a deep, deep sleep. Then God himself, as a smoking pot, walks in between all of this gory mess and, and makes that uh that sort of cutting covenant ceremony. And what he's saying there is profound. If I, the God Almighty, fail To fulfill this covenant, may I be like this animal spilled out on the ground. In other words, I would deserve that. That would be a violation of holiness. And Abraham didn't walk because Abraham can't keep his side. Abraham, in a deep sleep, witnessed God making a one-sided covenant with himself that God himself would call out a people. God himself would put a seed from Adam that would eventually be that ultimate blessing that would bless the nations. And we know, of course, from the New Testament, Galatians and other places, that seed is Christ himself. And so it's a powerful scene. I think it's the, the right way to sort of wrap up that early part of Genesis to go, Ah, God glorifying himself begins to get established, right? God is the, the key actor, Genesis 1.1. God establishes the key covenant to call a people to himself to dwell among, Genesis 15. I think it's a, it's a great package to put before students to give them uh, a vision, I guess, of what God's doing throughout all of scripture and really an appropriate view of what our role really is ultimately um, as we see God just putting himself on display and graciously inviting us into relationship with him, not unlike creation, that he was content in the Trinity, and made man and asked the man or invited man to be a part of that relationship. It's the same thing uh, in our salvation. Obviously we respond by faith, but then we have the same thing and that's established. Uh, those great principles and types are established um, in Genesis 15 at this covenant ceremony.
1: Yeah. And I, and I think that the, I mean, you say there that this sense, show students their role in the larger story. I mean, I think at the end of the day, that's what we're hoping at the Bears Institute is we can say, Hey, here's the larger story you student place yourself within that and all of a sudden it's not about you it's about what god is doing and yet you are a significant part right. of that story and so you know that genesis 15 moment it's really i mean that's a good picture of what we're trying to do in institute because it's hey let's see the larger story and then on occasion let's zoom in and look at a specific moment and how that plays at a larger story and on some level we could do that with any chapter but but genesis 15 is an is a neat moment and I, I think for a lot of students and myself included it's it's a good one because it's Oh, there's more riches here than I Mm -hmm. necessarily saw in my storybook Bible growing up or, you know, whatever the case may be. There's just, there's, there's riches here. So um, that's it for today, Kevin. I appreciate it. I mean, I I don't know if i told this before, but this is, I mean, the way you've taught Genesis 1 to 15 for me and for a lot of our staff really has shaped the way we see that passage and see scripture. And so that's just been neat uh, over the years and, and neat to see that now on multiple campuses and and all that so appreciate you coming and
0: talking about it today great Uh, it's a pleasure you've been listening to the Light Bears Institute podcast a production of Light Bears Ministries for more information visit lightbears.com